It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of September 27, 2015. On tonight's program, we'll hear Bill Sheft say, There's only two people that are worth talking to, Mayor Giuliani or David Schwimmer. And Vic Cohen tells us about his vinyl fetish. It was ridiculous and over the top. And, um, you know, it's just so, like, silly. This podcast is sponsored by Nobody Yet. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Thank you and welcome to this week's Get Off My Lawn podcast, featuring our special guest, Mr. Bill Sheft, whom you will hear in just a moment. How are you doing, Craig? I'm doing well, you? I am living a dream. Excellent. This is when uh, we would shamelessly again promote whatever our sponsor was for this week, but you know what? We, we, we don't have a sponsor yet. Crickets. I know. Crickets. Technically birds. Crickets. You can hear birds. Craig pointed out to They're me before. They're going to eat the crickets. Yeah, before we started recording that you can hear in the distance here in Backpack Studios some, some birds and occasionally a passing motor vehicle. That's because we are, uh, we're, we're guerrilla broadcasters here at the podcast and we, we, will, we will do whatever it takes to give you a podcast. Is that what that smell is? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we do it, and then we throw it at passersby. I, I won't get into details, but that's that's sometimes what happens. And this is yeah, this is our, our our what we call banter, our witty dialogue that goes in between the announcing and the first guest. Like I said, a couple of things that you would normally hear in this spot would be if we had a sponsor, we would rave about that sponsor. We love that sponsor. Yeah, whatever that sponsor is, they're, they're awesome. I would recommend them to a friend, to an enemy. To, to, to household pets, I think they could use our sponsor's product. Most definitely. Wh- whatever it is. So if you are a sponsor and would like to sponsor us so that you don't have to hear us keep saying the word sponsor, that would be something that would be awesome. Because we could be saying your name instead. We, yeah, your name. Like, let's say, hypothetically, vitamin water. Because that would be a fantastic sponsor. <laughs> I, you know, I have pretty much subsidized that company from the beginning. I know it's been acquired by Coca-Cola, but had I not been one of the first frequent customers, Coca-Cola would never have acquired that brand. Yeah, you made them desirable. Yeah. And so I think Vitamin Water could return the favor. And as I said in our little test podcast, we, we are willing to accept barter in, in exchange for, you know, instead of cash. So if you just wanted to ship me, say, a lot of Vitamin Water. Let's I, just say Vitamin Water one more time. Vitamin Water. There, that's what we're talking about. All right. Well, Vitamin Water, pony up, man. We will accept a, a local dentist. I, I, I need some dental work done. I lost a, a crown or a filling or something. So, yeah, if you're a local dentist here in the Southern California area, we would take that. If you have a free, uh, not say office building, but if you have free office space somewhere in the Los Angeles or North Hollywood or Hollywood or Burbank area, and you would like to promote your office space, not the movie, which was an awesome movie, by the way, but your actual office space, we will take that as well because we're looking to set up the actual backpack studios in a studio. So let's make that happen. Uh, Burbank Studios, former NBC Studios, that would be my prime location right there, right there in beautiful downtown Burbank. Craig, you're kind of quiet this this. I was, I was envisioning what it would be like to work at the NBC Studios. Yes. No, the Burbank be, Studios now. They're excuse now the me. Burbank the Studios. Burbank Studios. Yes, they are. They're no longer the NBC Studios because, well... The studios formerly known as the NBC <laughs> Studios. Soon they'll just be a font like Prince was for a while there. Just half a peacock. Yeah, that's symbol. right. It'd just be a, a, a cock then. There you go. <laughs> or 
Or a P. Better than a P. Or a P, yeah. You never know. On that, let's uh, check out this interview I did a couple weeks ago with Mr. Bill Sheft. I think you'll be pleased with it. He talks about everything you could possibly imagine in an interesting way. That's right. That's how I'm promoting this. He talks about everything interesting. Joining me today via the technological marvel that is the cellular telephone is a comic and published author uh, who for years served as the head writer for David Letterman. His newest book called Shrink Thyself is available wherever books are sold. Mr. Bill Shep, thanks for chatting with me today. Okay, it's good to be here. We, I got to correct you. I, I was uh, I was never the head writer. Oh. If I was the head writer, you and I would be having this conversation from a locked ward. <laughs> but I was I was in charge of the monologue for 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 years and years and years. But I was never the uh, the head writer. That's a much bigger. Uh, a job with a lot more responsibility, a lot more administrative work. Administrative work, bad. Got it. How long were you in charge of the monologue? Well, I was with the show for 24 years. I started at NBC in 1991, and I was there for the last two years of the show at NBC. And then about, I think about six months into the run at CBS, because the monologue was twice as big in, in, uh, as we did at NBC, it was a little more unwieldy, Dave, uh, said, uh, asked me if I would be in charge of sort of culling all the raw material and helping him put it together. And so I did that for, I did that for like, uh, oh boy, I did it for about six years. And then I, I left, uh, the show to finish a book. And then I, when I, um, I, I came back and resumed, uh, my, uh, duties, but with, uh, with Steve Young. Who, so we sort of did it together. I, I was, uh, Emore did the, he did the morning culling, and I mostly helped Dave put it together downstairs. So that was, uh, we, we shared that responsibility. Gotcha. Well, you touched on this a little bit already, but uh, I know TV critics who wrote frequently about late-night TV, like Bill Carter, Aaron Barnhart, others, uh, they talked about how Dave and the show had to change when you moved from NBC to CBS. Can you tell me what that involved for you guys as writers? Well, it was one of the things was they, they doubled the monologue, which was why I was hired at the show. I mean, if you remember the show at NBC, he did three jokes a night. Sometimes, some nights he'd do two. And then after Johnny Carson retired, for the last year we did four jokes in the monologue, the last year at, uh, at NBC. And, um, uh, and then when we went to uh, CBS... The monologue doubled to eight jokes, where it stayed for many years until the last, I want to say, maybe four years, where we expanded it even more because it's uh, it, it just uh, the act one, which was the monologue. We added um, a lot of interrupts rather than the show before had been just the jokes at the home base and then he would go to home base and then he would show tape at the desk and we incorporated tape and other kind of interrupts in the monologue so that just became a longer and longer piece and there were more jokes to stretch it out so you know we went from eight jokes to 12 and then 15 and then we scaled back to 12 because we would have all the interrupts and um that was probably the last, I would say, yeah, the last four years of the show. We, uh, the monologue had, ex had grown by about 50% joke-wise. 
Okay. It, it strikes me that there were a couple of uh, taboo subjects over the years. I don't know if taboo is the right word to use, but, uh, you know, for instance, Jay Leno really made his bread and butter off of the O.J. Simpson trial, and you guys seem to very consciously avoid subjects like that. Was Is that just my own interpretation, or is that accurate? Well, yes, because now this is, this is where I, this is 21 years ago. Sure. But this is what, this is the, the decision. Dave made a conscious decision to not do jokes, before charges were filed. Sure. So it was only, uh, you know, Jay was at it from, from day one because you didn't know, uh, you, you just didn't want to just go at him as if he did it or as if he was going to be charged. So we waited, however long it was, however many months it was, until he was charged. And once he was charged, we did the jokes, you know, um, and, and we continued to do jokes until, uh, you know, he was, uh, found guilty, uh, for, <laughs> until it turns out he didn't do it. Right. <laughs> um, and, and the first, I would, uh, the first, uh, when, when they had the first verdict, uh, as I recall, and we, we, the way the monologue had been set up was, Rarely did we do two jokes on one topic. We used to do eight jokes on eight topics. But then, you know, the OJ thing was so dominated in news, we'd do a couple. And then the day of the verdict was the first day we did an entire monologue on one topic. And that, we saw the benefit in that. Dave saw the benefit in that. So from there... If for eight jokes, we might just do three topics rather than eight. So that was uh, the breakthrough there. But, uh, you know, Jay, you know, back then loved to trumpet how he was doing uh, OJ jokes and we weren't. And it just couldn't have been further from the truth. Let me uh, ask you about, I guess, a more serious monologue, and that would be the, the first uh, post-9-11 show that was done. How much input did you have and how Dave was going to handle that? Uh, well, I'll, this is my favorite story of that day, is that we we had been dark the week before when the attacks happened. And um, uh, there was some question as Monday came around whether we were going to do a show. And I called Dave that morning before I came into work, and he said, uh, he said, I don't know if I want to do a show. I don't know if we should do a show, but he said, I'm going to do a show because Mayor Giuliani told people to go back to work. And he said, and there's only, there's only two people. He said, well, I want to do a show, but he said, there's only two people that I want to talk to today. And there's only two people that are worth talking to. And I said, who? And he said, well, he said, Mayor Giuliani or David Schwimmer. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the way it was totally would set you up. And we didn't get Giuliani that day. I think we got him yeah. on the, the uh, third day. Well, and, he didn't get um, Schwimmer either, so, you know. No, right. We, we, we um, <laughs> uh, and then what happened is, I think we, I think it was his decision that to, he had some things that he wanted to say, and he coalesced them, and it just was not appropriate to do, uh, a monologue, and then what happened out of that first break, again, you're talking, now we're talking 14 years ago, 
as I remember, we had some jokes written for him on blue cards that he did out of the two that were really kind of nice, tame jokes. And the one that I remember was, everybody is getting patriotic today. Puff Daddy changed his name from P. Diddy to P. Doodle Dandy. And that was one, and there would be jokes like that. Right. It was all, and, and we did that for a couple of days, and I think then, I think then the following week he was, uh, no, or even, no. I think Wednesday he was back at the mark. By Wednesday he was back at the mark. I think it was just two days with him at the desk. Yeah, I think that's, you're right, it's been a couple of years, but I think you're right about that. It was just a couple of days of yeah, that. Yeah, it's been 14 years. Right. <laughs> uh, you blogged pretty extensively the last couple weeks of, of the show um, and kept a pretty good sort of running history of sort of your your memories of those days. Now that you've had a couple of weeks now, a couple of months now to reflect, what, what stands out in those last couple of months as, as being memorable for you? I started the the, um, the blog with a month ago in the show, and um, my only goal was to not be gossipy <laughs> and to be very, very personal, to not talk about anybody else's experience other than mine. And, and, and that way, I could, uh, I would avoid you know, all this sort of breathless nonsense that was, you know, being written about the show, which, you know, people wanted to, I mean, it was the end of, so, it, it, you know, stuff, you know, conclusions by people that weren't there. I understand the conclusions made about the show. But, uh, so, as I look back, I, I was very happy with uh, the way the the blog turned out the way the diary turned out because it was it was what I wanted to do and uh, and I think that it gave people that really loved the show an insight into the show without being voyeuristic or gossipy and I think that it also conveyed my love for the show and the people that worked there their love for the show and um and it was not meant to be maudlin. It was, uh, or it was not meant to draw any giant conclusions about the legacy. And and I think that I achieved that, and I was really I was really pleased with that. I wanted to write something that nobody else could write but me, because nobody else had uh, my experience. A lot of people there had similar experiences because a lot of people there had been there as long as I had or, or, or longer. So I was really proud of that. And, it, and in terms of since since the show's been over, I'm, you know, I, uh, the only thing I feel is that it really couldn't have ended any better, any more satisfying than it did. And, you know, look, Ted Williams was lucky enough to hit a home run his last at bat. And I feel the same thing about Dave. And so there's really, I really haven't thought about it too much. There's no regrets. I, I miss the people, but I, I don't, um, I don't wish, uh, you know, people, a lot of people say to me, boy, I bet you're really wringing your hands because you don't, can't get a piece of this Trump thing. <laughs> 
No, I have to say, you know, being, having that critical distance, I can, I now have the freedom as a, as, as an out of work monologue writer to be disgusted by him <laughs> rather than sort of enthralled at the comic possibilities. So that's a great freedom, sort of like being a human being again. Yeah, I can, I can imagine it's a different perspective <laughs> to say the least. Now, your day as a writer, you said you didn't really uh, have to do the, at least in the later years, you didn't have to do the morning call, as you called it, of you know, rooting through all of the newspapers looking for the stories. What was no, your... No, no, the morning call I meant of the, of the jokes that were turned in. Oh, okay. Of, of the, that's what I meant. No, I, I still read newspapers, and I still wrote my, you know, my, my passive jokes, and I still... But I was just... Um, uh, it, uh, I, I dealt more with um, the uh, the product in the the second and third stage, is not the, the the nascent stage. Gotcha. So tell me about that. What what is a day like for the monologue guy? Well, it was you know I would uh, you know I'd have coffee and six Vicodin, and then I would get at it. No, I would, o- only um, six. <laughs> it was you know it was. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, as the years went on and technology helped you out, you didn't have to read six newspapers a day or glance through six newspapers a day. You just knew what the topics were. And and, and I would, um, you know, I'd write my, you know, in the course of the day, 40 jokes or 50 jokes or whatever, you know, what I had always done. And, and, and I would, but as um, as things change at the show, uh, I was more uh, writing jokes, responding to the topics that Dave seemed interested with, rather than trying to feed him topics. I was trying to supplement what we already had, rather than 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 create and um, like create new topics. But if there was something that was missing, I would say I think that you know I think we need something on this topic. And now, meanwhile, all the other writers were creating. All the other, they would have a meeting in the morning where they'd pitch ideas to the head writer, and and um, you, for tape interrupts or live interrupts or whatever the all the things that we would do in the act one and the act two on the show. There were tape pieces, there were live pieces, there were pieces that needed animation. As I always said about working at the show, it was like a it was like working at a daily newspaper, a weekly newspaper, and a, a weekly magazine and a monthly magazine because there was stuff that you had to do every day for that day's show. Then there was stuff that you had to do that needed a little lead time and would be out at the end of the week. And then there were the things like the big prop pieces, like the Halloween costumes or, or new books, where you had to get them in three months before they would be ready. Um, so there were, you know, you were constantly working on you know, different shows, but mostly we were working on that day's show. And, and, um, so by the show taped at, um, 4.30 and by two o'clock, the head writer goes down to rehearsal to rehearse the, the pieces for the act one, the live pieces, look at the tape pieces. And then Dave goes down to the dressing room and we, uh, ideally, we have 20 or so jokes, which we're going to cut to about 12. And sometimes we cut them down 
farther down than 12, and we have to write more jokes. And it's just depending on that day. And then we, then we had a meeting with all the, with the executive producers and the head writer and me, and we would kind of put the show together in the last hour or so before we went to tape and have to make any edits. And it was, you know, it was a fire drill every day. But, um, you know, the other writers who worked on the, the two and the four, the act two and the act four, and the, they would spend all morning and afternoon producing their pieces, which would mean editing them, getting, laying the music, if they had a voiceover, getting the voiceover guy. So it was, everybody was running around, and, and, and we also had to produce, and this is the case with any of these shows, of the material that gets produced, only 10% makes it to the air. So you're always producing, this is with a strip show, with a daily show, you're always producing 10 times more material than actually gets on the air. So, you know, for Dave, those 12 monologue jokes that Dave did between, uh, well, Dave might look at 100 jokes, but Steve Young and I might look at 300 to get to those 12. So... That's, uh, you know, that's the day. It was just, that's the thing about a strip show. I mean, you just make mounds and mounds of coleslaw. I've said this before, to try and get one good serving. <laughs> I, the, the, the phrase strip show keeps making me smile. I don't know why. All right, we hope you're enjoying the interview so far. If you're listening to this now, hopefully you've enjoyed it so far. Uh, this is the point at which we would interrupt the interview for a sponsor. But as we pointed out earlier... We have no sponsor. So we did vitamin water last time. Who else could we promote? Apple computers? Absolutely. <laughs> There's quite the representation on this table there, there's, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, let's call it Backpack Studios 2 is, is Craig's gear, and Craig's gear is entirely Apple-based. When I'm out on the road, I'm using an iPad. So uh, We th- couldn't have done it without them. We could not have done it without Apple. So even though they haven't sponsored us yet, there's still time. So right now, you could be listening to an ad for the latest Apple phone, which is out now, the latest iOS, which is out now, Apple Music, which is very popular now. Any number of these things could be an official sponsor of the show if Apple were to reach out and contact us. Craig, do you remember in your script what the email address is for them to reach out and contact us? Reach us at getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. Listen to that announcing voice. You could hear the dulcet tones of Mr. Craig Northcutt read your brand on our podcast. That's the sort of deal we're offering you. So please contact us, reach out to us, let us know, and uh, we will happily accept barter and or cash. Uh, and or single women. Well, Craig's married. He can't accept single women. I can't. He, he can, Well, he can't accept married women. He can't accept any women. I accept one. He, he accepts the mighty Sheila. That's right. But the re- I can accept women. Yes, freely. Yes, freely. Yeah, it's, otherwise there's laws. I think I'd have to go to Pahrump, Nevada to pay for women. Or Yeah, no, no. Any. Uh, all right. So Craig's given us the cut sign. Apparently we're done with that promotion. <laughs> and now back to the interview. Tell me about the current state of late night TV, how it's changed. I know we've got, as, as we are recording this, we're a day away from the, the new late show. Do you have any favorite hosts right now or anybody that's kind of standing out? Or an idea? No, again, this is one of those things where the, um, one, of the, uh, one of the great things about, for me, about the show ending was to have the freedom to kind of care about other things. So I don't, you know, I'm, you know, uh, at 11 o'clock at night, 
I'm in bed reading for a half hour, and then it's 11.30, and I'm going to sleep rather than staying up and watching what goes on. But, you know, it's uh, has it changed? Of course it's changed. It's changed in the last few years, and I think that it's... Um, uh, I think that it's given... Uh, given the demographic of the audience and given the changes in technology, that's, uh, you know, that's the, the direction it was headed where things are shorter and the idea is, you know, you don't care about, you know, if you get a, a two million people watching, that's, so, that's fine, but if you get 10 million people clicking on a YouTube clip, well, that's, that's great. And, um, and I think that that changed, I think that that changed a few years ago. And I think that, uh, you know, nobody, people watch whatever they want to watch whenever they're going to watch it. So the fact that it's, that something is on at 1130 means nothing. And, um, you know, uh, you know, John Stewart, um, you know, for, for all the acclaim, John Stewart, that he had, and all that deserved the claim that he had, John Stewart never had half the viewers that we did, and he never had a third of the viewers that Jay did, because, you know, but the, uh, the enthusiasm of his audience was like a hundred, you know, million people. And um, so I don't... Uh, I don't really, I'm not really paying attention and, and I, and I'm relieved to not have to pay attention. <laughs> that said, I think that Stephen Colbert is a big, big talent and I think that he was an inspired hire by them. And if he called you up tomorrow and said, hey, do you want to write some jokes for me? Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it's, because he has his own people and he doesn't, he does not do, he, he has no use for my services. <laughs> All right, I won't press that. Um, no, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, it's not, yeah. it, it, it's, that's just, I mean, have you ever seen him stand up and, 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 and tell a topical joke? Not yet, it'll be interesting to no. see what he does well, in terms no, of a monologue. I you so. know, I think that he's, you know, it's funny because when he got hired, a lot of people, and people who should know better, said to me, so you're going to go work for Colbert? And I said to tell them, it's not like GM getting a new president, <laughs> you know. This is, he has his own people. He has his own, he has his own force. And, and we had, uh, we had 75 people on the crew. This is crew guys. And he retained six. And we had 120 people on the production staff. And, and they took two. So, and they took two that were in the music department because they didn't have music on the old show. Right. So, you know, he's, uh, he's plenty um, experienced with doing a television show. This is true. Let me let me uh, ask you a couple questions about something else that you've been up to. As I mentioned at the top, uh, you've published a couple of novels. Most recent one I read not too long ago, Shrink Thyself. I, I recommend it. And frankly, I, I I'm I don't know if it's I'm I'm ashamed to admit I relate to your main character a little more than I should. 
That's uh, good. That's the idea. <laughs> did did you uh, did you base him on anybody, or how did that uh, how did your you know how did the idea for that book well, come about? I I'll tell you how it came about. I had written I'd written uh, four previous novels. My first one didn't get published because my first one was like everybody's first novel. It was a <laughs> hundred thousand words, eighty thousand of which were I. Yeah. And then I started, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I had three novels published, The Ringer, Time Won't Let Me, and Everything Hurts. And in every novel, I had an unorthodox shrink um, based on my three decades in therapy, various things, this and that. And so I set about to writing this book, and I said, Bill, you know, listen to me. You've done the crazy shrink thing now. You've done it in every book, sometimes more than once. <laughs> you got to stop. you got to write a book about a guy trying to live a non-psychological life. you got to write a book about a guy out of therapy trying to maneuver in his life. And I thought, well, okay, let's see if I can do that. And I started to write the book, and I realized, well, in order for the guy to have a life out of therapy, I need to address the end of therapy. And, uh, and then I need to address the shrink that he's leaving. And then that's when I said to myself, okay, you can have one more crazy shrink, <laughs> but this one really has to be crazy. Yeah, you, you amped, you amped up the crazy, no question about yeah. that. <laughs> and um, the thing about uh, therapists is that they're like stockbrokers. There's really only seven. There are a million stockbrokers. There's only seven that can make you money. <laughs> and there's a million shrinks, and there's seven good ones. And I just hope for you that you have the seven good ones. <laughs> and um, because it is really an imprecise uh, science, but it's something that I know a lot about through experience. So what I did was I just created this character trying to live a non-psychological life, trying to live life in the moment, trying to live, uh, you know, without dwelling. And the second that he makes that decision, things begin to happen to him <laughs> that would send anybody else running, screaming back into therapy. <laughs> but he does not, you know. Uh, and, um, and I just, it was... It was a very ambitious idea. I told it to a lot of people, and people I respect, and they all said, well, I'd like to see you do that. And then when it, when it came out, or when I showed it to them in galleys or whatever, they would say, you know what? When you told me about this book, I never thought you could pull it off, but you <laughs> pulled it off. And I'm really proud of it. I think it's my best work, and um, I think it's a lot of fun. And... Um, and you know, I think it's a lot of problems and a lot of laughs. Agreed and agreed. It it, it has motivated me to try to track down some of your earlier stuff. So the, I'll, I'll give you a full report on Twitter when I've done that. Please, please do. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you reading this one. And um, and and so, like I said, I think that um, it, you know, and it's certainly reasonable to ask how much of it is autobiographical, because I think it's reasonable to ask of any novelist. I have to say, in this book, it's the lowest percentage of all my novels of, of autobiographical material. 
So this is simply your imagination doing the work here. Yeah, well, that's sadly yes. <laughs> Not sadly, I think. Like I said, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was, yeah. as you said, there have been books, not just by you, but others about sort of the crazy shrink. Heck, it goes back to the Bob Newhart show. Uh, It goes back way before the Bob Newhart show. It goes back to, uh, it goes, uh, Donald Bartholomew had a crazy shrink. It goes back to Portnoy's Complaint, which was the whole session in, in, uh, the whole book is a therapy session. So, I mean, Bob Newhart just really... Uh, and kept, was able to encapsulate it in 22 minutes a night for a week for 10 years. For, yeah, and I think for a lot of us that was our first exposure to it. You know, therapy was such a taboo subject for so long, people just didn't talk about it openly. And I think seeing that show really opened people up to it. Right. The first time I discovered you was the first season, maybe first two seasons of Politically Incorrect, when you used to come on at the tail end with Bill Maher and do the cleaning out the notebooks segment. Yeah. That was the first time I think I saw you. I'm sure I saw your name in credits before, but I, that was the first time that I really saw you. You did uh, stand-up for a lot of years, or do you still do stand-up? I did stand-up up for 13 years, and I started at Catch Rising Star in New York in 1980. And the MCs, the house MCs, were comics that booked the shows, so that they were, you know, it was a, it was a plum job, it was a powerful job, and you had to have certain skills at booking the show. And the house MCs at the time were Bill Maher, a guy named J.J. Wall, who became a showrunner and a writer and a producer out in L.A., and Adrian Tolch, who is still working. Hilariously funny, and I know that because she's my wife, and we've been married for 25 years. <laughs> I and don't need to ask how you met her. <laughs> audition, when I finally passed audition, you know, you work late night, you work at 2 in the morning or 4 in the morning, and finally, you know, I kind of broke through, and then Bill Maher got The Tonight Show, and soon after that, he moved to L.A., and I replaced him as one of the house MCs at Catch Rising Star. And Bill and I were always very good friends, and... um in 19, hang on, I want to get this right. In 1992, on election night, he did a special for Comedy Central. And he said, you know, will you come on the show, this special I'm doing, and, um, and we'll do the cleaning out our notebooks, which is what we used to call in the bar when we used to just read lines we were working on to each other. And I said, sure, because by then I had been working at the Letterman Show for over a year, and I had a lot of stuff that he hadn't taken. And so I had a lot of the notebook was full. <laughs> so I went on with him, and it went really well, and he used uh, that night, what he did that night, to sell Comedy Central on this idea of politically incorrect. And when he would show them the tape, they would say, well, we like what you did with this guy, the Letterman writer. And he says, oh, yeah, that's going to be on every show. (laughs) (laughs) He told me he got the show, and he said, we're going to do this every show, which was was lovely for me. So I did the first, just the first season of the show, and I did, I think it was 13 weeks. So I did all 13 weeks, and we would do that. And, of course, by the end of the first season, you know, Bill was so strong and had, you know, he had the show in his head and he um, he knew where he was going with the show. And it was clear that 
our segment, it was just sort of a life preserver for it. I, I, I'm, I'm using that wrong. I'm using it was just it, it was it was something he didn't need to do anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it took a couple of minutes away that they they could have used. So that was it. I was you know very uh, flattered to do that. It was it was a lot of fun, and you know. You've seen where he's gone. I mean, he's a huge talent, and he's uh, he's one of the few guys that I know that became exactly what he set out to become, and um, and he deserves a lot of credit. And he's still a, a really hard worker. I mean, he writes as much as that show as anybody. You mentioned him getting the Tonight Show. Almost every comic of your generation talks about the days when he finally headed west to seek fame and fortune. You seem to have stayed east. Well, it's not because I didn't want to get the Tonight Show, and I came very close. I came very close, and, you know, I've got a... And I came very close to getting Letterman as a comic. I mean, that was before, you know, when I was turning in, you know, it took me... I submitted five times to the Letterman Show before I was hired in, uh, on the sixth time. And during that time, I was also trying to get on the show as a comic, and I came, I came close at Letterman. I came really close on the Tonight Show to getting the show, and I didn't get it. And uh, but a lot of people who are, you know, a lot of people who I'll say weren't as good as me got the show, and a lot of people who were better than me didn't get the show. And uh, it was, you know, Jim McCauley booked the comics, the late Jim McCauley, and he was a powerful guy, and uh, he liked what he liked. And, um, but I will say also that in my job as Catcher, at Catcher Rising Star, I got a lot of comics The Tonight Show. I helped put them up for auditions, and so did Adrian. You know, Adrian got Del Mar The Tonight Show hmm. because uh, she brought Bobby Quinn in, who was the director, and called Marr, who was not coming in that night, and said, Bobby Quinn is here. Get down. And Marr got down. Bobby Quinn loved him, brought in Macaulay, and he got the show like that. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of people to show. And I'm and, and people that, that should have been on the show, you know, very proud to say. People like John Mendoza, who's a tremendous comic, oh, and yeah. the late Ronnie Shakes. And, you know, I had a lot to do with that. And, and, and so that gave me a lot of... Uh, uh, look, I would have loved to have been on the show, but, you know, here we are. It's 2015. <laughs> if I'd gotten the show, I can tell you what would have happened. I would have gotten the show around 1989 or 1990. I probably would have done well my first time. I probably would have come back my second time, been a little too cocky, made the wrong choice, and that would have been it. Because a lot of guys, look, Jay Leno didn't do the show for seven years. Yeah. Jim McCauley, one night at Catch a Rising Star, said to me, Jay Leno will never be on The Tonight Show again. I don't think he's funny, and Johnny doesn't think he's funny. And then a year later, Jay did the show for the first time in seven years, ostensibly because all of the great shots he had done with Dave, right. he killed, and that's when his Tonight Show career reemerged. Yeah, so. and I, I think a lot of people don't remember those Dave and Jay years when Jay would come on and, you know, be, be the gruff commenter on what was in TV Guide that week and things like that. Nobody, yeah, people don't remember it because Jay has done uh, such a, uh, a relentless job of reframing the narrative. And um, But the, the truth was, he was a regular guest 
you know, Dave and him went way back at the comedy store. Dave always thought, you know, as I did, and as anybody of our generation did, that there was no better club comic than Jay. And um, so he brought him on when he got the show at NBC, and Jay was a regular guest, and, you know, and, and he literally had not been on this night show in seven years. Wow. Just on that, and if it's too gossipy a question, you do not have to answer, but there was a lot of conversation online and elsewhere the last couple of weeks of Dave's show about Jay being on one of the last shows, and that never happened. What is that something that seriously took place, or was that just an internet Absolutely. rumor? Absolutely. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And he was, he was offered a lot of dates, and uh, this, is, this is, I'm not saying anything that nobody, that other people haven't said. Right. He was offered a lot of dates, and it didn't come to pass. And, um, you know, uh, Dave was very gracious. Dave said, well, you know what? He asked me to come on one of his last shows, and I didn't think it was appropriate that I'd be on one of his last shows. So maybe he thought the same thing. And... Um, uh, you know, you can, but but there were absolutely discussions and dates were offered, and and um, and he, in the end, was not available. And in terms of um, in terms of uh, television, I think it's something that a lot of people would have loved to have seen. I think it would have been great television with the two of them. But personally. I'm thrilled he didn't come on. I'm thrilled. Personally, I'm thrilled. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, looking at your blog just before I uh, started this interview here, you're, you're in a band. I started a band five years ago, The Truants, based on uh, my fictional band and my second novel, Time Won't Let Me, and we play British Invasion and Garage Rock and Nothing After 1967, and we work... <laughs> regularly in New York and Greenwich Village and all over, and we're available. And, um, you know, this is not some uh, author in a band like Dave Barry or, you know, <laughs> or Stephen King. Uh, I can play, and my guys can play, and we're good. We're very good. And uh, if, you, if you need us, we're available. <laughs> Excellent. I... We're, we're, on, uh, we're on YouTube, and the website is The Truths Live. And we have tons of videos, and you can see for yourself. Cool. I will definitely link to those on my site and on my Twitter as well. Is there a... Uh... the book, please, though. Oh, we absolutely. Sell, <laughs> we want to sell the book, honest to God. And I'm, I'm going to be... Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm going out in at the end of September, and uh, I'll be in Indianapolis, in Lexington, Kentucky. I'll be in South Bend, Indiana, and I will be in um, uh, Cincinnati, and I think maybe Nashville and Memphis. I'm going out at the end of So, you know, you can check my website, my blog for that. Absolutely. And you, you, it's, it's been uh, an honor speaking to you. Uh, I think we had a good interview here. Well, I don't you know about an honor. Oh, I, I would say an been, honor. I think it's been an obligation. Well, whatever you want to call it. I think it, it, you, you have done a lot of uh, what I would consider to be a dream job. Uh, everything from working in late night, writing your own novel, having success with that, and just sort of having the freedom to do what you seem to want to do in the business. So I congratulate you for I, that. I'm very, look, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I'm very fortunate. I married the right girl, which I recommend. <laughs> I mean, you know, get your own. But, um, and I do, 
what I think that I'm supposed to do for a living, and I've had a lot of I've had a lot of great good fortune. And the best thing I the best piece of advice I ever heard was writers write. You know, if you want to be a writer, you got to write. You can't just sort of fancify about it, which I did for years and years and years. And you know, I started writing my first novel at 38. Yeah. And because you know. Before I was 38, I thought everything should just be handed to me. And um, so I think that, and if you're struggling, pick up a book called The Artist's Way. That was the book that really changed for me. Watch, I'll sell a million of her books and two of mine. But, um, I won't link to hers. It's but, uh, but thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm well aware of, of my good fortune. It's time once again for our shameless pandering to hipsters and audiophiles alike. Here's Kevin with today's Vinyl Fetish. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bill Sheft. I enjoyed talking to him very, very much. Another person I enjoyed talking to is next week's guest, a gentleman by the name of Vic Cohen, whom you will get to know very, very well. One of the segments we have here on the show to sort of preview the next week's guest is what we like to call Vinyl Fetish. As the name implies, it's talking about vinyl. But in this case, the vinyl is referring to music. Albums, LPs, stacks of wax. I've asked each of my guests to tell me a little bit about some of their favorite vinyl, and maybe it's from when they were younger, maybe it's something they had a hand in creating. Either way, it's been kind of cool to hear some of their answers, so let's go straight to Vic Cohen's vinyl fetish. And remember, if you like the way he sounds, next week we'll have a full interview with him recorded live at Cantor's Deli, the official, although still unsponsored, restaurant of the podcast. Well, the only album I know, I mean, I have a few albums, but I really love the, uh, the Steve Martin uh, stand-up comedy album. The comedy is not pretty or let's get small. It's a black album, and I think he's wearing uh, a balloon. The balloon, and I think that's Let's Get Small, I think. I could be wrong. On that. Uh, but that's the one I recommend. That's, yeah. It's really good. And I, and I was going through old stuff at home, and I found it, you know, back where I grew up, and I, it's one of the things I kept. So I was just looking, I saw, I have it now, you know, I currently, not, not like as we're not speaking, on you. but, yeah, but that, that was really great. Yeah, that, that is, was a great that album. is, a, his stand-up. I loved when he was doing, there's nothing wrong with being serious, yeah. I just loved his. The balls-to-the-wall comedy approach. Yeah, I liked it, it was ridiculous and over the top, and, yeah. um, you know, it was just so, like, silly. I loved it. That is an excellent album recommendation, I, and, I, I yeah. second it. And his book, he wrote a book called Born Standing Up. I believe that's the title. And it's very interesting if you're ever interested in stand-up or just in Steve Martin. It's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. So I recommend that, too. It's not vinyl. That's not yet. paper. Maybe there's an audiobook version somewhere. Yeah, it's there. really good. This has been the Get Off My Lawn podcast, brought to you by Nobody Yet. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments or to suggest a guest, our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. 
go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.